Hello and welcome to this Arthur Cox podcast. Today we are going to discuss two significant new pieces of EU legislation, namely the Digital Operational Resilience Act, which is known as DORA, and the Network and Information Security Directive Number 2, which is known as NIS2. And we're going to look at what these new laws entail and what they mean for businesses. But before we delve into all of that juicy detail, let me start off by introducing myself. My name is Ian Duffy. I'm a partner in the Technology and Innovation Group here at Arthur Cox, and I lead our digital transformation and outsourcing practice. I'm joined today by one of my colleagues. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Kira Anderson. I'm a senior associate on the tech and innovation team, and I work closely with Ian on those outsourcing projects that he mentioned. Great. Thanks, Kira. So I think a, a good um, starting point might be to really provide some background and context um, around the various different things which have ultimately led to these new laws around operational resilience and cybersecurity in the form of DORA and NIS2. So in recent years, we've seen a very significant sea change around how organizations do business, with more and more organizations transitioning towards digital ways of working and a digital workplace. And this trend has really just accelerated since the onset of the pandemic, with many organizations relying on remote working and other technology solutions to really keep their business running and to generate efficiencies over the last number of years. Now, undoubtedly, this digital revolution has led to many positives and efficiencies for organizations, um, but equally, it has also led to new and enhanced threats. So, for example, um, the online working environment has increased the risk of, of cyber threats, while also increasing reliance on IT service providers and other outsourced service providers to deliver technologies and other solutions to help organizations run their business, which in turn creates greater supply chain risks, so in the form of supply chain dependencies and vulnerabilities. Now, on top of that, we've also seen a level of criticism being directed towards NIS1, which is the precursor to NIS2, and which was the first EU-wide piece of cybersecurity law. So off the back of all of these different developments um, and different things in recent years, um, the European Commission has developed DORA and NIS2 to help tackle some of the key operational resilience and cybersecurity challenges that now arise across the EU. So Carol, I might hand back to you and perhaps you can uh, provide us with, with a high level overview of, of DORA and NIS2. Sure, thanks Ian, happy to. Uh, so NIS2 really is at its essence a cybersecurity law as NIS1 was. Uh, it sets out minimum security standards and it also contains requirements in relation to incident reporting. So the scope of NIS2 is a bit broader than the scope of NIS1. It applies to more uh, entities and it now divides these obligations between uh, a bucket of, of essential entities and then important entities. So essential entities uh, include your utility providers, uh, providers in transport, health and public administration, as well as credit institutions like banks and data centers. Then you have the second bucket of important entities. So this includes online marketplaces and search engines. And now NAS2 will also include social networking services um, as well as uh, providers in food, medical device, pharma, and the motor vehicle sector. So it is a bit broader in terms of its scope. So switching, that's NIS2, switching to DORA. Um, DORA forms part of the European Commission's wider digital finance strategy. So it is designed to uplift existing ICT risk management requirements for range regulated firms. So this includes in relation to security measures, in relation to incident reporting, and contractual obligations. In other words, DORA is designed to help protect against some of the risks that Ian mentioned uh, that form part of some of the digital transformation projects that organizations are undertaking. 
However, I think the most interesting aspect of DORA is that it not only applies to financial institutions as expected, but it also is going to apply to major ICT providers. Ian may jump in on this. Yeah, yeah, I think that's exactly right, Kira. Um, that, that certainly is an interesting aspect. You know, as you would expect, DORA applies to some of your typical regulated firms like banks, e-money institutions, investment firms, and insurance firms, but it will also apply to certain major ICT service providers. So for example, the likes of large cloud service providers, large providers of SaaS solutions, and this will effectively result in some of the biggest players in, in the technology services space becoming subject to direct supervision by EU financial regulators for the first time. So effectively one of the EBA, ESMA, or EOPA. Um, so this means that you know some of the types of organizations that Kira referenced as being subject to NIS2 um, could also be subject to DORA as well. So, so prime examples of that are uh, banks and cloud service providers. So Kira, do you want to maybe touch a little bit on, on the interaction between the two? Yeah, and I think this is a point that comes up in a lot of our, our podcasts and briefings is the overlap between these regulatory regimes. Um, but it's helpful that NIS2 actually does address this point. So um, it has specific provisions that says where there are um, sector-specific rules um, that relate to cybersecurity management or incident reporting, which are covered under NIS2, that those sector-specific rules will apply instead of the NIS2 requirements. Uh, essentially, this provides helpful clarification, so organizations are really always subject to one regime. Uh, so, for example, where a bank is subject to, to similar obligations under NIS2 and DORA, the bank would only be required to comply with those security and incident uh, management obligations under DORA instead of DORA and NIS2, if that makes sense. Um, so, uh, Ian, I don't know if you want to kind of discuss some of the other key points uh, from DORA and provide a bit more context. Yeah, sure, Kara, sure. Well, well, well I think... Um... Probably first key point from DORA is that regulated firms uh, are required to maintain a comprehensive and well-documented ICT risk management framework. So obvious question, what, what does that mean? Well, effectively, it means that a regulated firm is required to maintain a suite of policies, procedures, strategies, controls around how they actually um, protect their uh, IT infrastructure, their IT networks, their systems, etc. And this documentation needs to be supported by technical measures and tools that are actually deployed and maintained by organizations in practice to practically apply the different types of information security processes and controls that they say they're going to put in place. Um, second key aspect of DORA is that it also places a very strong emphasis on identifying and responding to IT security incidents. So part, as part of this, DORA will require firms to put in place early warning indicators to help them actually identify when a security incident has occurred or, or is about to occur. And firms also have to take appropriate steps to ensure that the root causes of incidents are identified, ultimately with a view to making sure that root cause uh, is eradicated and, and you don't face the same incident again in the future. Um, firms must then actually report you know, actual or suspected um, ICT incidents to their relevant competent authority, and this has to be done within tight prescribed timeframes. Um, and typically that's within one day for the initial report. In terms of who you actually have to make that report to, well, in Ireland, uh, firms will have to make the report to the Central Bank of Ireland. And in turn, the CBI may report that incident to other European regulatory authorities where relevant. So that could be the EBA or, or ESMA, for example. Um, third key aspect of DORA is that regulated firms must ensure that their third-party ICT service providers meet appropriately high information security standards and that they agree to certain minimum terms 
in their contracts with the regulated firms. So, um, for example, DOR requires that the contracts with ICT service providers have to include provisions like, um, you know, requirements around service levels, appropriate rights of access and return of data for the regulated firm, um, appropriate uh, information security obligations have to be imposed on the ICT service provider, and that provider has to be required contractually to assist the regulated firm if it suffers any um, IT security incidents. Now, I suspect that for some people listening to the podcast, the types of requirements under DORA, which I've just ran through, will sound pretty familiar. Um, and there's a good reason for that. That's because they are. Um, so, Kira, do you want to maybe touch on you know, how certain aspects of DORA are similar to certain other uh, relevant uh, regulatory requirements um, that could apply to regulated firms? Sure. Yeah, there's undoubtedly similarities between uh, certain requirements under DORA and then requirements applying to certain regulated firms under the EBA outsourcing guidelines and the CBI outsourcing guidance. In particular, those um, outsourcing rules under the guidance I just mentioned require a number of similar provisions to be included in the contract with the service provider. So, for example, around service levels, access and audit rights, having a description of the service, um, information security requirements and also robust requirements around data protection and confidentiality. But there's an important distinction here. So the requirements uh, under the EBA outsourcing guidelines and CBI outsourcing guidance applies to critical or important outsourcings only, while the equivalent contractual requirements under DORA that Ian just mentioned will apply to all ICT contracts and not just those for critical outsourcing services. So regulated firms are required to ensure that a wider scope of their ICT contracts comply with those requirements under DORA than is currently the case under EBA and CBI outsourcing requirements. So just going back, um, Ian, to those provisions relating to ICT providers, perhaps you can provide some detail on, on, on what DORA will mean for these critical ICT providers. Yeah, yeah. So we've touched on this a little bit, uh, Kira, already, but, but undoubtedly DORA will have a, a significant impact on, on quite a number of large ICT service providers because, as we mentioned, it's actually going to result in them being subject to direct supervision, uh, an element of regulation by European financial regulators for the first time. So as we mentioned, the types of ICT service providers that could be impacted include you know, large cloud service providers, large providers of SaaS solutions, and ultimately, these type of providers could find themselves being supervised by one of the EBA, ESMA, or EOPA. So I guess the obvious question leading on from that is, how will this work in practice? How, how are, are these sort of large ICT service providers going to be supervised and regulated by European uh, financial regulators? Um, and so I think what will happen in practice is that firstly, the European financial regulators will designate certain large ICT service providers as being critical to the proper operation of the financial sector in the EU. Following this designation, um, each relevant provider will then be assigned a lead regulator from one of the EBA, ESMA and EOPA. Um, and that lead regulator will then assess whether um, the relevant provider has in place appropriate and comprehensive rules, processes, controls, etc. to manage the ICT risk that it presents to regulated firms in the EU. And off the back of that assessment, the lead regulator will be able to issue recommendations and instructions to the large ICT service provider. And in certain cases, this may involve dictating certain remedial action that needs to be taken by that provider. So it could, for example, be that um, the regulator deems that the large ICT service provider needs to afford additional rights or protections to its customers under, under the contract or it may be that the regulator thinks that certain additional controls are, uh, are required around subcontracting or, or additional governance protections are required. And as part of all of this, um, the lead regulator will have pretty extensive rights to request 
information from the ICT service provider as well. Um, so I think worth noting also that DORA comes with the risk of potentially significant enforcement actions and fines for large ICT service providers if they do fail to comply with the types of requirements in the regime that we set out above. And interestingly, ICT service providers will also be required to, to pay oversight fees to their lead regulator effectively to recover uh, to cover the costs um, of regulation. So Kira, we might just then switch back to NIS2 um, and perhaps you can um, go into a bit more detail and, and touch a bit more on, on some of the requirements that will apply to essential and important entities. Sure. So in relation to that first bucket of essential entities under NIS2, so you might remember this would include banks, um, data centers, the utility providers. NIS2 provides for a fully-fledged supervisory regime, so that means both proactive and reactive regulation from the, the competent authorities. Then in relation to that second bucket, bucket of important entities, so this covered uh, online marketplaces and social networking services, NIS2 only provides for a reactive supervisory regime. So what this means in practice is that important entities are going to face a lower regulatory burden in terms of how they document their compliance with NIS2. One of the biggest changes with NIS2, and I think part of the reason it came about, uh, was in order to increase the rigor of security measures that were prescribed within the directive. It was quite um, uh, nondescript, I suppose, in NIS1. So under NIS2, they've set out a, you know, a laundry list of what needs to be included in a risk management framework, including uh, you need to cover risk analysis, incident handling, business continuity, you need to cover supply chain security, cybersecurity training within your organization, and also the use of encryption and penetration testing as appropriate. Another big piece of NIS 2, and this was a feature of NIS 1, is incident reporting. Um, so critical and important entities uh, are required to notify incidents that have a significant impact on the provision of their services to the competent authority within 24 hours. So under NIS 1, that was 72 hours, so that's been reduced quite dramatically. In terms of who that competent authority is, in Ireland, this is called the Computer Security Incident Response Team, or sometimes we refer to it as CSERT, uh, which is part of the National Cybersecurity Center here in Ireland. And uh, similar to, I think a little bit similar to the GDPR regime, these critical and important entities will also be required to notify recipients of their services without undue delay um, if those incidents are likely to adversely affect the services. So that's incident reporting. In terms of what happens if it all goes wrong um, and fines, um, so there's two levels of fines, one for essential entities. So these entities can face fines of up to a maximum of 2% of global annual turnover or 10 million, again, whichever is higher. For that second bucket of important entities, fines reach up to a maximum of 1.4% of global annual turnover or 7 million, again, whichever is higher. So yeah. that's just a snapshot of, of NAS2. That's, that's great, Karen. I think that that's really useful detail around some of the key requirements in NIS2. And, and as we've talked through all of this, we've talked about, you know, DORA and NIS2 as new requirements, proposed requirements. So I guess a, a, an obvious question perhaps listeners may have is, is where are we at uh, in terms of timelines? When can we expect to see DORA and NIS2 coming into force? Sure. So we do have the final text. So European Parliament has adopted the final versions of both NIS2 and DORA um, on the 10th of, of November. Both of the texts will need to be signed off by Council and then published in the official journal before they actually come into force. But this is expected to happen this month or really at the latest January. 
So DORA is a regulation, so it's directly effective, which means it will come into force automatically 24 months after publication in the EU official journal. So we're looking at the first quarter of 2025. For NIS2, this is a directive like NIS1. It needs to be transposed. So member states are going to have 21 months um, to, to transpose the directive into their national law once it's uh, published in the official journal. So we're probably looking at the end of 2024 for NIS2. Um, so we, we've given you all the context and, and all the detail, but in terms of the practicalities, in terms of the here and now, Ian, do you have any recommendations for steps that organizations can take to start addressing DORA and NIS2 um, yeah. and considering these upcoming timelines? Yeah, absolutely, Kira. I think there, there, there are a number of different steps that organizations can start to look at so as to help them ensure that they're ready for DORA and NIS2 when they actually do come into for, to, to force. So, Number one, I, I think it's really important for organizations to be clear on whether they're subject to one of or both of DORA and NIS2. So as I hope Kira and I have illustrated um, during this podcast over the last 10 or 15 minutes, DORA and NIS2, they don't apply to everyone. So it's really important to be clear on whether um, your organization is a regulated firm that's within scope of DORA or whether your organization is one that constitutes a critical or important entity that is subject to NIS2, or whether you fall into to both buckets, and then you need to start thinking about overlap between the two regimes. And that kind of leads into a second sort of key point for, for the here and now. Um, if you've established that your organization is subject to DORA and or NIS2, you should really start looking at um, the existing regulatory regimes that apply to your organization and consider whether it's possible to leverage off certain things you've already done for alignment with those other requirements. So, you know, do you have policies and procedures in place that may be helpful in terms of complying with DORA and NIS2? You know, do you have other types of controls and measures that may help you on your compliance journey? So um, going back to something Kira touched on earlier, prime example might be if your organization is subject to the CBI guidance on operational resilience or the CBI guidance on outsourcing. You may find that a lot of what you've done around trying to enhance compliance with those regulatory rules can help your organization when it comes to compliance with DORA if you're also subject to DORA. Um, a third um, key point to think about right now is you should consider whether your organization already has in place robust information security um, controls and certifications that may help when it comes to compliance with DORA and, and or NIS2 and particularly demonstrating that compliance. So for example, ISO 27001, ISO 27002, they're sort of key and in industry leading uh, information security sort certifications. And if your organization holds one or both of them, that should help you on your journey towards compliance with DORA and NIS2. And um, fourthly and finally, you may wish to determine whether there are any key gaps in your compliance with DORA and NIS2. So when you've sort of gone through the, the earlier steps, that I discussed um, and you've figured out what you have, um, you know, how you can use that. The reality is there's likely to be some gaps in your compliance and, and identifying them is important so that you can go about effectively addressing them. And, and sort of one area where you may identify gaps um, if you are subject to DORA is around how you pay for your con contracts with your ICT service providers because DORA requires certain provisions to be in all of those contracts. So um, that may be one area where you can uh, find that there is work to be done. And, and perhaps just one general point um, is that we find when it comes to these sort of regulatory changes, new requirements, et cetera, whether it's in uh, operational resilience, information security space or elsewhere, 
getting buy-in from management and key stakeholders at an early stage is, is really important. This can help you in terms of actually taking the steps that your organization needs to take to comply with DORA and NIS2. And it can also smooth out the path in the event that you, you know, come into and encounter any sort of challenges or obstacles around your compliance. Thanks, Ian. That's really helpful. Uh, plenty of food for thought there and hopefully so, some takeaways. Um, so that's it for me and Ian. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and we really thank you for listening. Of course, if you have any questions, uh, feel free to reach out uh, to either one of us. Um, but yeah, thank you again. Take care. Thank you.